Well, um, welcome to Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, you may recall uh, that the first Sunday after the New Year, we celebrated the Feast of Epiphany with our own Paul Houston uh, preaching. Those of you who are familiar with the Anglican calendar might be aware that um, that started the six weeks of the Epiphany Tide or season, which ends today, the day that is called in many churches Transfiguration Sunday. With the end of the Epiphany season, we move right into the Lenten celebration, a season, sorry, of feasting in preparation for the Easter. In fact, next Wednesday, as you heard in the announcements, we will celebrate Ash Wednesday, the official start of a day of the longest fasting season of the church. And just before I bore you asleep with all this liturgical history, do you know what next week's Tuesday is called? Right, right. Several names come up. That's right. Shrove Tuesday is one name because it's the last night of enjoying rich, fat foods before the fast. Hence the other name, Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. Exactly. The last enjoyment before the Lenten period is the reason behind crazy carnivals around the world as much as the gluttony and debauchery typically associated with many of them certainly has no scriptural basis. Nice. Though what's the point of this lengthy bit of liturgical history or its connection to today's uh, gospel message? As suggested by many scholars, the Transfiguration event, one of the five major milestones in Christ's life on earth, appears at the point when Jesus' ministry starts heading towards his passion. This, therefore, provided his disciples with the encouragement and hope that they needed while heading into the turbulent waters of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem and his passion. And for us, his feeble followers two millennia, over two millennia later, the story of the Transfiguration is also an encouragement as we head into the sobering weeks of Lent. Let's first briefly look at, review the text, which, by the way, appears in all the Gospels except for John's. Basically, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a mountain and offers them there a unique miracle. The only miracle recorded that occurred on Jesus himself rather than on someone else. During the first part of the miracle, he is bathed in a unique bright light, and alongside appear Moses and Elijah, with whom he is talking. The light confirms and conveys Christ's divinity. While Moses represents the law, or the first five books of the Bible, and Elijah represents the prophets. Their presence brings further divine confirmation of Christ's authority and preeminence among all those representing God on earth. It also highlights, as my wife rightly suggested, the beautiful continuity of God's plan and of the Old and New Testaments of Scripture, from the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and the prophetic books to the Gospels of Jesus Christ. The second miracle, part of the miracle, builds on the first. God himself appears, 
and in a manner very similar to the first epiphany during Jesus' baptism, he declares that Jesus is his beloved son. This further confirms that Jesus is the son of God and that he is to be obeyed or listened to. It's interesting, I was about to move on from there about what it does, it confirms to us and it helps us and this and this and it suddenly sort of, it crossed my mind this morning, but, but, but what about Jesus? What did transfiguration mean to him? And I thought, oh, I'm stuck. I don't have any commentaries quickly to check up to see what, uh, what's, what's, what's science saying about this? What's theology saying about what it meant to Jesus? I prefer to just say in uh, my favorite words that Cynthia told me, few days ago answered the question, one of my questions, um, I don't know. And I would invite you to stay a bit in the mystery of what actually could have meant, it meant for Jesus to be transfigured and to receive those words from God the Father. Now, between the two grandiose coming back on earth, uh, between the grandiose moments, miracles that we have, there's of course the humorous interlude of Peter suggesting with precious naivety to build some temporary lodgings for everyone to just hang together. I mean, when you meet your favorite uh, Rabbi Jesus, not only him, but all the all-time greats, Moses, Elijah, who wouldn't want to just hang around for days? Their initial simple enthusiasm changed, however, into sheer terror when God's voice came from the cloud. No, this is definitely not general audience G entertainment to watch with popcorn in a tent. Parental guidance, or may I say divine parental guidance, is, is necessary. And by the way, it occurred to me, listening to the Old Testament reading that we had on the mountain, that the first time around, the first mountain transfiguration experience with Moses, God decided that the people should just stay home and just took Moses. Now, you all know how that turned out as far as what people were doing when Jesus was communing, when, when Moses was communing with God. So I guess second time around, God decided that we can come with him. So that's why you have these cute little things about the tabernacle and so forth that, uh, that the three disciples uh, went through. But the human interlude notwithstanding, the whole episode is indeed monumental. Together with the earlier epiphany during Jesus' baptism, it brackets Jesus' ministry as the center, central milestone of his earthly life, the others being the baptism at one end and the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension at the other. Both epiphanies are miracles in the proper sense of signs, pointing, signs pointing to a greater reality. As Acts 2.22 tells us, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. The reason why epiphanies and the transfiguration in particular 
are so unique is because they're rare, once-a-lifetime intersections of the divine with the secular, unique touch points between heaven and earth. Now, if every miracle is a window into the eternal, an epiphany is surely the clearest such window. And to once again remind us of the disciples' childish response, how could any of us respond maturely or wisely to a window open unto God himself? So this was the story and its significance in a nutshell. It was majestic, unforgettable, and most likely deeply encouraging to the three disciples at the scene. It was and it remains a beautiful story that, was, that has encouraged the church throughout its history and is especially remembered before Lent, the solemn period of grief and fast based on Jesus' 40 days in the desert. And for Jesus' disciples, as for us, millennia later, it confirms that our faith is not centered on a nice, good person or even a charismatic leader, but on God himself, clearly revealed to us through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the powerful words of the 19th century hymn, which I'm about to read, but because if I started singing them, I would butcher it for all of you, but maybe somebody can help me. My hope is built on nothing else. Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweeter frame, but holy gene on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Thank you. Beyond offering us this blessed assurance, I would like to suggest that the transfiguration can also personally impact us if we see it not just as a sign or a tradition, but as a parable. Yes, a parable. Imagine it as a story Jesus tells, an autobiographical story this time, with the intent of teaching us something. In fact, if it's a parable, it's an inverse or reversed parable, where contrary to standard parables that are teaching us about heaven through an earthly story, here we learn about our earthly life through a heavenly manifestation. And if this is indeed a parable, then the central point for us might be God calling Jesus my beloved son. The point of the parable here is that the God who called Jesus his beloved son is also calling us, each one of us, his beloved sons and daughters. Now, I can see some theological eyebrows being raised here. On what basis can we appropriate these words meant for Jesus to ourselves? Well, because of literally dozens of verses like Romans 8, 8, 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Romans 8, 14, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Or 1 John 3, 2, now we are children of God, and so forth. So we are without doubt God's sons and daughters. Now remember the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, the parable that's better, more appropriately called the parable of the loving father. If the transfiguration is a parable, this one would be its companion. The first one, ours, focuses on, fa on a father who is full of love, the other on the father who tells us that we are his beloved children. Ultimately, they're both parables of God's love. This, I believe, is an important message of the transfiguration for us here. God the Father is affirming his beloved Son, and in the process, he's affirming and recognizing us all as his beloved sons and daughters. Those of you who enjoy, like me, Henry Nouwen, will immediately recognize this key faith concept that the late theologian left as his legacy, our state of belovedness. Believing, accepting, and holding on with all of our strength to this core identity of our life, our status as beloved sons and daughters of the Most High. Here's how Henry Nouwen puts it. Every time you feel hurt, offended, rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I'm the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. The only caveat, of course, is that our status as beloved sons and daughters of the king requires first our adoption into God's family. And this depends on our personal, individual choice to recognize God as our Father. Without knowing our Father, how can we know how much He loves us? If we would like, we would be just like people living in utter poverty, unaware of some inheritance due to them from a family that they had never met. So anybody here who really struggles with this whole faith and God thing, I would just say, get to know your Heavenly Father. Just like in the case of the prodigal son, our Father would just love to meet you. Your Father would love to meet you, to come running with his arms open wide and let him take, him, take, take you into his hands. This, my beloved sisters and brothers, is what I see in the transfiguration of our Lord. No matter where you may be in your life and spiritual journey right now, may I encourage you to reflect on this precious truth. And more than reflect, to boldly appropriate it to yourself. And allow it to carry you through life's ups and downs while being held safely in the everlasting embrace. In the, in the words of Psalm 131, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Happy Transfiguration Sunday. And in the wake of Lent, 
and the nearing Easter, let's pray together. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.